Hello, and welcome to Gallimaufry. This is the first in what I hope will be many episodes. A Gallimaufry is a collection of seemingly unrelated random objects. That's what I hope this podcast will become, a random collection of uh, whatever garbage I could come up with. I'm Lanny, and today I am joined by... Uh, hi, I'm Buffy. Uh, I'm Lanny's friend. Buffy, today I would like to tell you a story. A story about a sinister conspiracy, a lost and noble prince, an evil tyrant, and the war over soul of an empire. More likely, a story about a crazed conspiracy theory, a deceitful imposter, an unfortunate monarch, and a chaotic civil war which brought death and destruction to said empire. Along the way, we'll play knife fights with the boys, mutilate a poor innocent church bell, and perform history's first and only reverse sled by shooting. I hope you enjoy the ride. Uh, I love stories, and uh, I can't wait to unpack that. Don't worry, you'll get time. <laughs> Our story begins with Ivan the Terrible, the first czar of Russia. Ivan is himself a really interesting figure, and I'd love to do an episode about him sometime, but our story concerns itself with what happened after his death. And a little side note, uh, the epithet, the terrible, is a bit misleading. The Russian word uh, grozny is translated into terrible in the sense of something inspiring terror, rather than being of low quality. It's not a pleasant nickname, but it's not an insult either. So he was terrifying. Oh, yeah, he uh, killed thousands of his own people, tortured, murdered, mutilated, burned cities down, everything you can think of a, you know, a tyrant doing. Okay. He was he was a quirked up guy. He was, he, he was white. He was a quirked up white boy. <laughs> his first wife was a woman named Anastasia Romanovna, who he chose out of a lineup of a few hundred other eligible maidens. That's how uh, Russian czars married. They just got a bunch of women, lined them up, and said, uh, you... And she was picked, so had to be doing something right. And, you know, they got along pretty well. She managed to keep his more violent tendencies at bay, and they had six children. That's the good news. The bad news is four of those children will die in childhood before the age of two, which... Goddamn. Hey, it's Russia. It's 17th century, 16th century Russia. What are you going to do? They don't, uh, they don't build kids like they used to. (laughs) (laughs) No. The two who are left were Prince Ivan and Prince Theodore. In uh, the summer of 1560, Anastasia died of a sudden illness, and Ivan was convinced that his wife had been poisoned and began a purge against the boyars, the boyars being the Russian noble class. Yeah, many boyars tortured and executed, burned the stake, impaled, whatever you could think of. But here's the interesting part. He might not have been wrong. In 2001, Anastasia's body was recovered and examined by uh, Russian scientists who discovered a high buildup of mercury in her bones, a sign that she may have actually been poisoned. Oh, shit. Now, after that, he took five more wives, though there are stories that he may have had two after that, though historians doubt it because those they don't appear until the 19th century. This was illegal. In Russian Orthodoxy, in the Russian Orthodox Church, a man can only take three wives, and that's it. You're done. Cut off. Uh, Whether the wives die or you divorce them, it has to be uh, the limit. So Ivan taking six wives is, you know, against the rules. But he's the czar. You know, who's going to stop him? His city now. 
it's it's his rules. It's it's his mental breakdown, and he's making the rules. Exactly. His next two wives, Maria and Marfa, are also died suddenly, kicking off another couple of rounds of purges. Then he married two women, both named Anna, and both of them uh, bored him, and so he forced them to come, become nuns. Like legitimately, just were boring. Yeah, they just had bad vibes. He didn't want to be around them. <laughs> He had to focus on his mental health. Oh my gosh. The sixth wife was named Maria Nagaya. And I even didn't like her also, and she almost got nunneried. But then she did something that the Annas did not do, and she got pregnant. On October 19th, 1582, Maria gave birth to the subject of today's episode, Prince Dimitri, Ivan's third son. So let's take a moment to talk about the sons. First son is Prince Ivan Ivanovich. This Ivan seems to have been a good guy, relatively speaking, uh, intelligent and capable, and he may have actually made a good czar. But we'll never know, because on November 15th, 1581, the two Ivans got into a heated argument. Ivan the senior, the czar, yelled at uh, Ivan the son's wife for being for not being modest, like she was wearing, I don't know, short sleeves or something like that. <laughs> Called her a whore. Of course. And, and yelled at her. And so it, her wife, her uh, wife, his, his wife, her husband, <laughs> he is a male wife, this item. That's true. Got a deleted argument. And the czar ended up hitting his son over the head with a scepter, which broke his skull and sent him into a coma. And four days later, he died. Bonk. 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 With his son dead. He now had his second son as heir, Prince Feodor, which was problematic because Feodor was kind of useless. He was weak and sickly since childhood, and he was, you know, a nice guy, apparently, but he didn't really give a shit about ruling. He liked to pray and read books instead. Some historians believe that he actually may have been on the autism spectrum, though some others doubt that, and we'll, we'll never know for sure. So when Ivan died in March of 1584, rest in piss, you won't be missed, <laughs> Theodore was crowned czar. But he didn't actually reign. He didn't want to reign. The responsibilities of government were turned over to a council of lawyers led by a man named Boris Godunov. The Godunov family was neither powerful nor influential. Boris had only been promoted into the court because his father-in-law was the head of Ivan the Terrible's secret police. Theodore at this time was 27 years old, though it was clear that whatever ha was going on with him wasn't going to go away anytime soon. He was never really going to be a capable czar, so the regency was in fact permanent. And since Theodore also didn't have any children of his own, he married and had, well, he had one daughter who died immediately, basically. Because and... as we've discussed, the children born in that time uh were uh, pussies. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they had a skill issue there. Which meant that his brother, Dimitri, who was technically illegitimate, technically a bastard, but again, who cares, um, stood to inherit the empire. This also meant that he could pose a threat to Boris. The regent had the 16-month-old boy shipped off to the town of Uglik on the Volga River, where the prince grew up. He seemed to be fairly healthy, other than the fact that he had uh, epileptic seizures on a semi-regular basis. 
His hobbies are also said to have included uh, watching cows be slaughtered and beating chickens to death with sticks. Normal. This is normal interactions and behaviors. This he is now eight years old. Another of his hobbies included um, Marlin Spike, which is a game where you throw a Marlin Spike. That's like a little kind of eight, nine inch blade into the ground and see it right in a circle. It was, it was all the rage at the time. This is like <laughs> the this hot is what, hobby. This is what they had. This is what uh, preteens in Russia had before Call of Duty. And Dmitri was fond of it. On May 15th, 1391, he was playing this game and something happened. There are two theories about what exactly. The first is that Dmitri had a seizure while playing the game, ended up falling forward onto his knife killing him. The other theory was that Boris Godunov, who was now effectively the Tsar in all but name, had murdered Dmitri in order to seize the throne for himself. His death was convenient for the regent, and soon after the, the death, uh, he sent Dmitri's mother off to uh, nunnery. The uh, Interesting. inquiry commission, by the way, was led by another boyer by the name of Vasily Shuisky, and Remember that name. It'll come up later. So here we have especially dead prince and an unpopular regent. As soon as the church bells rang to announce the death of Dmitri and Euglick, people knew, effect, well, they, they thought they knew what happened. They, the immediate assumption was that the prince had been murdered. He had died suspiciously. Oh, no, he just fell onto his knife. Come on. And so the people of Euglick rioted, led by uh, Boris's political enemies. They did, you know, riot shit. They they murdered tax collectors, burned stuff, stole stuff, everything. Lanny, Soldier. you didn't tell me that this would be a cr- true crime documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, true crime. Well, the criminal being the concept of epilepsy. He needs to be stopped before he kills again. <laughs> The soldiers from Moscow came to put down the rioting, and those who took part were exiled to Siberia. One of the exiles, incidentally, was the person who had started the riot, the person who had announced the death and caused the riot, the church bell. The bell was declared a traitor. The bell itself. The bell itself had its tongue removed, its clapper taken out, and was whipped through the streets. And then it was exiled to Siberia, where it was put in a monastery. In 1892, three years after this horrific crime, the bell was pardoned by Tsar Alexander III and allowed to return to Euglick, where it remains to this day. They even gave it a new tongue, though you can still see the inscription on it reading, uh, the first inanimate exile to Siberia. So, Dmitri... Wait, 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 wait. wait. Does that mean that there were multiple... Uh, exiled random yes. objects. They did actually have a semi tradition there for a while of exiling bells. <laughs> There's another story about um, this is off topic, but Tsar, but Ivan the Terrible uh, had the city of Novgorod basically sacked and burned to the ground because it displeased him. And then he had the church bell brought to him as a prisoner, wrapped in chains to prove his power over the city. So bells have a kind of power in Russian tradition. Okay. That makes more sense. 
but also it is very funny to imagine this dude fucking hates bells yeah, that much. Mom made him watch uh back in Notre Dame before he was old enough. It's and true. He just got traumatized. <laughs> the, the bells. <laughs> so Dimitri is dead. Or is he? That's the third theory. That he had faked his death. This eight-year-old boy faked his death and had been stolen away to, to safety somewhere else, being replaced by some poor random peasant child. And that's the theory that's going to grow in popularity. I, I take back what I said about uh, children at that time being weak as fuck. Um, no, they were just crafty. <laughs> they were tricksy. You think the... Um... Four others did the same thing too. Yes, uh, that's how they've uh, been able to get by. Unfortunately, we are going to have to kill another kid right now because God Czar Theodore, uh, about the age of, he's, he's like forty now, just dies suddenly, mm-hmm. old age, I guess. And since he had no kids, he had no heir. Last of Ivan the Terrible's sons was now dead, allegedly. And so mm-hmm. Boris Godunov, the leader of the Regency Council, declared himself Tsar Boris I, breaking the dynastic line that had ruled Russia, according to legend, since the Viking chief Rurik of Novgorod 700 years earlier. Boris uh, was not that popular. He, um, the, the rumors had not gone away, and if anything, they had just spread. The older and wealthier warriors, those who had you know, survived Ivan, resented Boris for being a relative lowborn which means from the beginning, his court was full of potential enemies. During his time as regent, he has strengthened the power of the aristocracy at the expense of the peasants. In uh, 1592, he had ended the practice of serfs being able to move freely for the two weeks running St. George's Day. Without that privilege, serfs were effectively land. They were effectively a part of the land. Whenever you bought land, you bought the serfs on it as well. They were your property. And uh, this would remain law in Russia after Boris. It would remain law um, until the 19th century. Hmm. And this had been done in a desperate attempt to reverse the economic downturn that had plagued Russia during the Regency. So Boris is unpopular with both the nobility and the peasantry, and the economy is not great. But it's going to get worse. But due to something that had that was not happening in Russia, due to something that happened on the other side of the planet in Peru, specifically to the volcano Huayna Putina. In February of 1600, Huayna Putina erupted, spewing thousands of tons of ash and debris into the atmosphere, where it partially blocked sunlight across the planet for years to come. Russia was among the hardest hit. 1600 through 1604 were cold and wet. Bad news for agriculture. Winter came early those years, ruining harvests across the empire. Uh, Food became scarce, prices skyrocketed, and the imperial treasury, which was already running out of funds, was quickly stretched to the breaking point. The result is perhaps the harshest famine in Russian history. It's impossible to know exactly how many perished, but historians believe that maybe up to one-third of the entire population of Russia died over the course of the next 10 years from starvation or disease 
or violence. The situation had spiraled far out of control and the Tsar was powerless to stop it. What popular support he had just dissolved. Because in the superstitious 17th century, this famine was taken as a sign of God's wrath. This lowborn had schemed his way onto the throne by murdering a child. But if this tyrant was overthrown, who would replace him? Remember that third theory I mentioned? Well, in 1603, Dmitri returned from the dead. We don't know who exactly this guy was, but he was about the same age and looked pretty similar to the dead prince. He shows up in Poland under the protection of a powerful Ukrainian nobleman by the name of Adam Vishnevetsky. Poland is the, at this time, the main rival of the Russian Empire, a powerful kingdom of the West. Unlike Russia, Poland had a weak ruler and a powerful aristocracy. The same, the Polish parliament, could veto any of the king's decisions at any time. And unlike just about every other monarchy in Europe, the Polish monarchy was non-hereditary. When the king died, the next king was elected by the same. Interesting. Now, the Polish nobility saw the weakness of Russia and supported Dmitri in order to further destabilize their mortal enemies. In October of 1604, Dmitri crossed the border at the head of a Polish army. Boris was unable, effectively, to organize a defense. The Russian army was scattered and mostly under the control of local magnates, many of whom opposed Godunov. Food shortages had hit the army hard. As word of Dmitri's return spread across Russia, the peasantry rose in support of the true czar, the long-lost prince. Boris claimed to have discovered that Dmitri's real name was Grigory Otropev, and that he was a disgraced former monk. This is more likely than him being the dead prince, but historians believe that this is also false, that he was just Boris coming up with a random lie that would make the peasants hate him. It didn't work. Boris, meanwhile, continued to decline in health. The famine and the civil war had a massive effect on his mental health, and in April of 1605, he died suddenly. He was succeeded by his son, the 16-year-old Theodore, Theodore II. But the son doesn't last long. Two months into his reign, he is overthrown and assassinated by Dmitri's supporters in Moscow. And Dmitri himself shows up a few weeks later, where he was proclaimed Tsar Dmitri I. His mother, Maria Nagaya, was brought back from the nunnery and acknowledged her son in public as the rightful heir and her son. So for all intents and purposes, this rando was now effectively the czar. He, we have no idea who it was. This is crazy to me. We have literally no idea who this guy was. It was just a random guy. It was just a random guy who came in at the right time and was charismatic enough to just say he was the prince. And, they and everybody was him. like, sure. And they went along with it up to the point where he is now a czar. He is on the throne. He rules Moscow without question. There is there, there is no actual resistance to this. This guy, it's him. He's back from the dead. That's the story. They said sounds about right. Yeah. So question is, how does he fuck it up? Because he fucks it up. First way he fucked it up is that he keeps the alliance with Poland. And it was convenient 
for him to have the Volt Army at his back. But now he has the Russian army. He has Russia, but he still keeps to his poles, which is problematic because Russians hate poles. They do not get along at all, partially due to religious reasons, historical reasons. They are main rivals at this point. And rumors began to spread that Dmitry had secretly converted to Catholicism, which was the greatest sin imaginable. Scandalous. No, but not only had he converted to Catholicism, his plan was to convert Russia to that damnable heresy. Oh, and remember that name I told you earlier? I'm sure you do. Vasily Shuisky, the man who had led the inquiry, which concluded that Dmitry had died in an accident, changed his story officially. Now, he acknowledged the claim and said that he helped cover up his disappearance and helped him escape to Poland, where he lived in secret among in a Polish noble family until the time was right for him to return. But despite this report, Vasily hated the new Tsar. They did not get along at all. And, well, the, the, the cause of the famine in the first place was a volcano in Peru. Not God is angry at this guy for killing a kid. So it didn't go away. There were still people starving in the streets. There were still entire villages abandoned. Soldiers mutinying to become bandits. This is not going away. And, and so this, that all spawned from a volcano eruption that was all the way across the earth. Yep, that's that's how it works. Uh, same thing happened in uh, 1815. A, a single volcanic eruption, if it's powerful enough, can temporarily change the climate across the entire planet. That's crazy. Yeah. So not only that, but here is his final mistake. He announces his plan to marry a Polish noblewoman the daughter of one of his supporters during the invasion, a Catholic, a Catholic, marrying, and not even converting, marrying and being able to keep her damnable Pope worship. Enthusiast. Pope Pope enthusiast. And so on the morning of May 17th, 1606, about a week after the wedding and a year after his ascension to the throne, an angry mob stormed the palace. Dimitri tried to escape by fleeing out the window and running across the rooftops to safety, but he was not as good as par- at parkour as he thought, and he fell off the roof and broke his leg. The assassins found their czar in an alleyway and shot him to death. Presumably, Vasily told him to stay dead this time. In order to prove definitively, absolutely, he is dead. He is no longer alive. He cannot be your czar. That is his body there, they stripped him naked, dragged him through the streets, while proclaiming him a heretic and an imposter. His body was... You mean like the game? He, he was a sus, he was an imposter, and he was among us here in Russia. His body was displayed in Red Square for three days before being loaded into a cannon and fired in the direction of Poland. They really wanted to make sure that he was dead. But was he dead? We don't know. I'm truly, we can never know with such a um, crafty guy. Yeah, he, he skipped death once. So two days after, uh, Vasily Shuisky declares himself Tsar Vasily IV, ending the reign of false Dmitri I. That's right. We are not done yet. 
Word of the coup spread through Russia, triggering a new wave of unrest and resentment. While the Sheen has started to fade from the pretender, he was still pretty popular in the provinces. You know, at least is better than the usurper. Vasily worked out a pretty clever way to discount the legend of Dmitri's revival. He sent agents to Uglik to dig up the prince's body. And these agents discovered that the body was miraculously undecomposed. It had not decayed a bit. He looked like he had just died. In Russian Orthodoxy, if a body fails to decay, that is a sure sign that the soul of its former inhabitant has ascended to heaven and been made a saint. So, the eight-year-old princeling who enjoyed torturing farmyard animals had been chosen by God as worthy of a place at his right hand. So he has an alibi. He can't be on earth. He's in heaven. Now he has proof. The coffin was taken from Uglik to Moscow in a grand procession, proclaiming miracles along the way. There were, um, I touched the coffin and uh, he cured my blindness. Or he touched the coffin and my cow gave birth to triplets. I don't know. Whatever peasant things you can come up with. Weird peasant miracles. Yeah. My shoe lasted five more miles before fading into dust. <laughs> A miracle. They did it. Yeah. So I say the coffin and not the body because the coffin was actually closed. It smelled nice, though. They uh, burned incense all around it constantly, constantly. And they said it smelled nice. So that's all the proof you need that it, that he's, you know, in there and he's, you know, not decaying as we speak. Definitely a body in there. Trust there are, me, guys. There is absolutely not an eight-year-old in there being consumed by worms. <laughs> absolutely not. So the coffin was taken to Archangel Cathedral in Moscow, where it was displayed for several days until even the copious amounts of incense they were burning could no longer cover up the smell, at which point it was buried. Nobody bought it. Nobody in Moscow bought it. And now a new theory emerged that not only was that not the prince in the coffin, it had not been the prince who was fired out of the cannon. God damn it. Dimitri lives. No. (laughs) And so... The unrest that had began with the assassination of Dmitri had by this time escalated into full-scale rebellion in Western and Southern Russia. But these rebels didn't have Dmitri. They didn't have the prince. And so if the, even if they did succeed in overthrowing the government, they would never actually you know, have a czar. And so into this scene comes a traveling beggar. We have no idea who this guy is either, but he claims to be Andrei Nagoy, Dmitri's cousin, who claimed to have secret information on his cousin's whereabouts. I know where Dimitri is. I can tell you, you know, for a price. Give me a little something. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you where the price is. And so this guy who, we don't know what he was. Either he was, these are, the tradition is, he was either a servant of a priest who was banished for sleeping with a priest's wife, or a Jew who had converted to Christianity to escape persecution. Either way, he was captured by rebels in July of 1607, and threatened with torture until he revealed the, who, where Dimitri was. Can you guess where Dimitri was? Where he said Dimitri was? He said, it's I'm right here. It's me. I'm Dimitri. I was lying earlier to gain your trust. I was lying earlier. I wanted to see if you could still, you know, believe in me. It's me. It's me. I'm back. Do you miss me? So the rebels pledged their allegiance to this wandering beggar 
as their true czar. And suddenly he has an army of thousands, but he doesn't have the luck of his predecessor because the Poles don't buy it. The Poles bought the first guy. Well, maybe they did. Maybe they bought it. Maybe they just wanted a guy to use against Moscow. But the Polish nobility did not support second Dmitri like they did first Dmitri. And so he did not have money or supplies coming in from Poland to feed his army, which was made up largely of Polish mercenaries. So the first rule of hiring mercenaries is you have to pay those mercenaries. They're not going to fight for you if you don't pay them. And now you can no longer pay them, which meant as his army marched towards Moscow, it was just hemorrhaging men. But along the way, uh, he runs into first Dmitri's um, Polish wife, who publicly recognizes him as her husband. For confirmation, finally, this is him. He, they, they, they just killed some random guy and fired him out of a cannon instead. So in 1609, Poland escalates this conflict. The King Sigismund of Poland personally intervenes, declaring war on Moscow and laying siege to the strategic city of Smolensk, which is close to the border, on the way to Moscow. If you want to capture Moscow, you got to go through Smolensk. That's the rule. It's like everyone did it. Napoleon did it. Hitler did it. The Swedes are going to do it in like a few generations. So everyone does it. Got it. His goal was to place his son Vladislav on the Russian throne, effectively making Russia a vassal of Poland. The invasion was a complete disaster for Dmitry. His Polish soldiers preferred to fight on the side of their king rather than a Russian pretender who wouldn't pay them. Say what you will about Sigismund, uh, he pays. Those nobles who had supported Dmitry uh, defected to the Polish side as well, declaring Vladislav their new czar instead of this pretender who also you know, couldn't pay them either. And then another faction defected too, these being the patriotic, the patriots who opposed Polish invasion on principle and saw both, both Vladislav and Dmitri as interlopers, it, it, infecting and desecrating motherland of their very presence. These people wanted a Russian czar who was able to be able to defeat Poland and take back what had been lost. Back in Moscow, the Polish faction staged a coup against Tsar Vasily in July 1610, exiling him from the city and making him a monk. It's true. I feel like that's the way that they got people to fuck off most of the time. Yeah. Mostly it was women, but you could do it with a guy as well. So they established their own council of boyars, which is known to history as the Seven Boyars, and turned over control of the capital to the Polish army in September of 1610. Polish Dmitri wouldn't last Tsar Vasily for long, though. Pushed back and weakened, his army dissolving, his funds run dry, no chance of success, Dmitri started to lash out at his inner circle. On probably spurious evidence, he had one of his bodyguards, a man by the name of Peter Yusinov, whipped and fired in December. This former bodyguard then, you know, as you do when he get fired, he went out and he got drunk and he roamed around the city and just kind of, you know, doing whatever. The normal response to getting fired? Yeah, drinking with his friends. Uh, you know, they didn't make him give away his gun, though, which is important, because on uh, one night in December, 
Tsar Dmitri II, well, the first, but really the second, second false Dmitri, it gets com complicated, uh, mm -hmm. decided to go on a sleigh ride around the city for fun. And so we're just going around, you know, he's riding his sleigh when he stumbles upon uh, Peter. Peter pulls out his pistol and shoots Dmitri to death on the spot. <gasps> and that's two down, one to go. One, There's one more false Dmitri we have to get to. God damn it, there's so many of them. And now, it's a bit of a cliche that in military mystery, that you do not invade Russia in the wintertime. And by 1610, the war has started to go against the Poles. The patriotic warriors, led by a man by the name of Dmitry Pozarsky, consolidated their power in what part of Russia remained independent and negotiated an alliance with Sweden, then a major power on the rise in Central Europe. Incidentally, the King of Sweden was also the uncle of the King of Poland. And now he was fighting on the side of Russia against his great nephew and nephew. The Polish army in Moscow was effectively under siege. Much of the city was controlled by rebels, and the forces outside the city walls were being constantly raided by Cossacks. It's about this time that Dmitri returns. Dmitri lives! Once more! Once more. Can we can we get account for all of the things he's uh, supposedly or uh, allegedly survived? Okay, he survived being stabbed in the knife, stabbed in the, right. stabbed in the neck with a knife. He survived um, being shot in this alley. By the way, after they shot him, they also hacked at him with axes for a while. Right. And then they dragged him naked to the streets, displayed him in public, and fired him out of a cannon. Right. And then he got shot. And then um, there's another story, though, I don't know if this is accurate, that after shooting him, Peter Yusinov uh, cut off his head with a sword. <laughs> All Beheading of also survived. Yes. He was really pissed and drunk. We know basically nothing about false Dimitri III. That's his actual name, by the way. That, that's uh, his false name. False Dimitri III. If you look him up in a history book, he is false Dimitri III. Imposter Amogus. <laughs> There are three imposters among us, or maybe two. <laughs> so he shows up in the city of Piskov towards the border with um, with Poland in the north there. And he says he's Dmitri. That's all we know. We know he just kind of shows up. He may have been a priest, may have not been, don't know. But we do know that uh, nobody gave a shit. But Fiskov supported him, and he had a few Cossacks outside Russia, Moscow who were just kind of sitting around and harassing random Poles. But, you know, first Dmitri was a big deal. He comes back from the dead. Second time he comes back from the dead, yeah, yeah, he's back. Let's do it for real this time. Third time, eh. They're like, God, again? Yeah, yeah, get a new thing. This is getting old. Come on. And this Dmitri also kind of sucked. We don't really know. Again, don't know much about him, but apparently he was a bit of an asshole. His own subjects overthrew him, took him into prison, and then turned him over to Moscow, where he was executed in May of 1610-12. There may have been a false Dmitri IV. God during, damn it. He just keeps popping up. 
he shows up allegedly in Astrakhan, which is in the south of Russia, uh, within the border. But historians disagree on uh, whether this guy was actually False Dmitri the Fourth or just a guy who, because of the inefficient and you know chaotic time, mm-hmm. uh, was mistaken for this other guy on the other side of the country. So he may have been it, may have been False Dmitri the Fourth, maybe not, probably not. There, he's not in the camp. Unless. He's, a, he's apocryphal. He's not canon. <laughs> On October 27th, 1612, Pozarski retook Moscow from the Polish occupation force. The, um, with this last pretender defeated, the capital liberated, the boyars assembled a ground council to decide, once and for all, who's the czar? Can we f- at least agree that that guy's dead? He's died four times now. We, we we gotta just stop this. We gotta... Uh, it's enough. No more Dimitris. No more. No more. We're, we're done. We're done. We're done. Just... Bleh, bleh, no. And so, the boyars settle on the 16-year-old Michael Romanov, the son of the Patriarch of Moscow, and the great-nephew of Anastasia Romanovna, Tsar Ivan's uh, beloved first wife. But this 16-year-old is, uh, as they say, built different. Not only does he not get overthrown, he manages to hold on to power until his death 32 years later, kick the Poles out of Russia, and establish a dynasty which will rule with an iron fist until the Russian Revolution in 1917. How did he die at 32? No, he died 32 years later. He died at, like, 48. Oh, okay. But again, how did he die at 48? Um... I don't know. People just die sometimes. <laughs> That's just what happened back then. Yeah, people died. People just died. Stay lovey. The period between the death of Theodore I and the ascension of Michael I is known in Russia as the Time of Troubles. During that 15-year period between 1598 and 1613, over one-third of all the Russians had died due to either famine or violence or disease. The empire had been torn apart. Central authority had effectively collapsed. The empire that arose from this chaos was very different from the one that had fallen. It was more centralized, more authoritarian. The population were effectively slaves tied to the land. The czar was a quasi-religious figure chosen by God himself. After 15 years of chaos, the nobility accepted autocracy as a restoration of order to prevent chaos. And that's a legacy that still remains in Russia to this day. So, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and tell your friends. Like I said, we're still figuring this whole thing out. So any criticism, any advice is, is much appreciated. I mean it, please. The main source for this episode was a short history of Russia's first civil war, the time of troubles and the founding of the Romanov dynasty by Chester S.L. Dunning. If you want to know more, go read the book. It's good. Uh, any th- closing thoughts, Um, I cannot believe that uh, the world's first game of Among Us was uh, in Russia. Yeah, and uh, like everyone lost. Real. And everyone lost. Mm, don't fake your death. Or do fake your death. T- or do. Or do. It, it, it's a really good party trick. But don't overstay your welcome. Do it True. Twice, you only get it twice. Twice at most. After that, it's just boring. 
Everyone's exactly. And uh, yeah, confirm your kills, everyone. Have a, this has been Gallimaufry. I'll see you next time. Bye.